0: Okay, join me in turning, if you haven't already, to Hebrews chapter 2. We're on a break from Romans. It was meant to start last Sunday, um, but we'll fit two in still, uh, Lord willing, today and next Sunday. And the first still, we're away from Romans. We'll get there, uh, Lord willing, we'll get there again. These Hebrew sermons, I'm visiting some material from uh, 10 years ago already when I preached through Hebrews, and uh, just wanted to revisit uh, Hebrews 2 in particular, and these great verses, and um, it's always interesting to look back something like 10 years or or longer or whatever, and and see what, what was said, where I was at, and and to think through that and rework it and, and to re-preach it. And to, it's a fascinating thing. i just thankful for the Lord's faithfulness. Hebrews 2, 10 through 13, primarily 10 and 11 today under the title, Christmas is for Sinners. Let me, let me read the text now. Let's just let's switch it up. Let's read the text, and then we'll thank the Lord for it and ask His help as we consider it. Hebrews 2, 10 through 13. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Father, thank you for your word, and we pray now that you would grant a voice, that you'd grant understanding, and that you'd grant us grace to grow and apply what we hear in your word and see. We pray that you would be shaping Christians here, that you'd be growing your church. So we give all this to you, and whatever there is to give is from you, and we pray that you would now use it for your glory. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Christmas is for sinners. Hmm. It's not a very pleasant way to start, I suppose. Christmas is for sinners. And when I say Christmas, I'm uh, thinking um, of the coming of Jesus to earth in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity being born a man, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And when I say sinners, I'm thinking of you and me and every human who ever lived who have joined the sinful rebellion against our Creator King simply by our existence, but also by choice every single day of our lives, and apart from God's grace in and through Jesus Christ, are under the just wrath of God against our sin. Christmas is for sinners. Simply put, Jesus Christ came to help sinners, Jesus Said, of course, Mark ten forty five. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Have you heard of George Whitfield? It's like weak if you want to know. It's a like Whitfield. There's <laughs> a little bit of a hard H in there. George Whitfield, the great 18th century English preacher, he happened to have been the guy who sparked the great awakening if you've heard of that. Well, he once preached preached it this way, the coming of Christ and how he comes to help sinners. Quote: "Oh, amazing condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ to stoop to such low and poor things for our sake. What love is this? What great and wonderful love was here that the Son of God should come into our world in so mean a condition to deliver us from the sin and misery in which we were involved by our fall in our first parents and as all that proceeded from the springs must be muddy because the fountain was so, the Lord Jesus Christ came to take our natures upon Him and to die a shameful, a painful, and a cursed death for our sakes. He died for our sins and to bring us to God. He cleansed us by His blood from the guilt of sin. He satisfied for our imperfections, and now, my brethren, we have access unto him with boldness. He is a mediator between us and his offended father. That's George Whitfield. the kind of doctrinal preaching that sparked the great awakening. Well, the Apostle Paul wrote it as David read it earlier. This way, Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And it's these ideas, whitfield Paul, so many, so many, everyone who's spoken of, preached faithfully about the coming of Christ. It's these ideas of one being sent forth. Of blazing a trail to save sinners. And, and secondly, the, the purpose of it being that those who are saved are, are welcomed into God's family as sons, and therefore brothers and sisters of Jesus. These are the two things about Jesus' coming, the two things about Christmas that the author of Hebrews addresses in our text. From the beginning of the letter to the Hebrews and throughout, we get some of the most powerful descriptions of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the the heir of all things. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power, and and right now he, He sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, and He is identified as the Son of God alive and mighty and glorious and reigning over all that was created through him that is everything our text for this morning is Hebrews 2:10 through 13 while intricately connected to a seamless argument that comes before it and carries on long after it tells us two great things about jesus christ to which i've already alluded so these are going to be our two main points number one he is the pioneer of our great salvation he is the pioneer of our great salvation being sent forth to blaze a trail to save sinners so pioneer would be that one the second one he is the elder brother of all the redeemed, of all who believe by God's grace, who are brought into the family of God. So those are the two main themes, pioneer and brother, that we'll consider today from these verses. Number one of two, Jesus is the pioneer of our great salvation. Hmm... Verse 9, actually, the the author really began this line of thought in verse 9, explaining that, of course, we do not yet see the fulfillment of all of creation subject to humanity as it was originally given back in Genesis. But he writes, we see Jesus, we see the one in whom dominion over creation is fulfilled, him having been for a little while made lower than the angels in the incarnation, now crowned with glory and honor because of and through the suffering of death, a death died for those he came to save. And then our verse 10, again, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, In bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. Jesus is the founder of their salvation. He's the founder of our salvation. Jesus is the forerunner, the founder, the the pioneer of the salvation of sinners. That's essentially what that bit of verse 10 means. He was leading many sons to glory by blazing the trail in front of them, founding salvation, pioneering the trail, being the first one through, taking on the unsuspecting enemies, breaking through their lines and making it home first, ahead of all who would come after Him. That's what it means that Jesus is the founder, the pioneer of our salvation. Now, to do this, He had to be human. He would need to be one of us. He would need to suffer and die. And in that dying, dying in our place, He would need to conquer the one enemy we couldn't, which is death itself. And He would need to rise again from the dead, victorious, and enter into glory, because that's, of course, the point of His coming in the first place, according to verse 10. Look there again. Bringing many sons behind Him to glory. That's why He came, to do it. And one commentator named F.F. F. Bruce explains it this way, quote, He is the Savior who blazed the trail of salvation, along which alone God's many sons could be brought to glory. Man, created by God for His glory, was prevented by sin from attaining that glory until the Son of Man came and opened up by his death a new way by which humanity might reach the goal for which it was made. As his people's leader, representative, and forerunner, he has now entered into the presence of God to secure their entry there. End quote. Now, People like to talk about, I think especially these days, there's a, a new trend. I think it's a good decade old or, or, or more. People don't want to maybe describe themselves as Christian, but they, they would like to say, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. Uh, I'm a Jesus follower. Uh, have you heard that? And, and, of course, Christians truly are followers of Jesus, but doesn't this add a bit of a deeper dimension to the idea of following Jesus? I, I think, to some degree, the desire to describe oneself as following Jesus comes from a desire to define it for oneself. We're, we're following certain parts of what we like about Jesus, and they don't like evangelicalism or they don't like what they think Christianity represents in the world these days. But doesn't this add a bit of deeper dimension to the idea of following Jesus? We normally think of the idea of following Jesus to be that of maybe merely obeying Him, of seeking His will, and bearing fruit in our lives in keeping with someone who bears His name. But it's it's really quite more than even that. Based on these kinds of texts, we must say that we follow the path blazed by Jesus Christ. We follow the path blazed only by Jesus Christ and the only path blazed by Jesus Christ who leads us on that one path into the promised land of salvation and eternal life into glory forever. You want to follow Jesus you want to follow Jesus? Well, quite, a, quite apart from getting then to define which parts of Jesus you want to follow. You must now understand that following Jesus means something very specific. The Jesus who exists goes to a cross and then to glory. He goes through suffering and then home. You want that, Jesus? He has gone where we could not go. By His own resources of righteousness and truth and an all-conquering life, He has opened up the way to heaven for us. And by God's grace, through abiding and persevering faith, we follow Him there. This is what He explained to His first disciples just before leaving them to take up His cross. John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. That's John 14. And when they asked him then what that way was, do you remember? He replied with the immortal words I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is what the writer of Hebrews is communicating as well. Jesus is the way, the pioneer and trailblazer of the one salvation whom we must trust, depend upon, and follow. Jesus is the founder of Their salvation, the writer goes on, made perfect through suffering, made perfect through suffering. If Jesus is the pioneer, the trailblazer of our salvation, then what was the wilderness or the barrier through which He had to travel to achieve so great a salvation? What was it that stood between us and God that we could not traverse ourselves, that only He could? The answer is given at the beginning of the book, isn't it? Not not Hebrews, uh, Genesis. Genesis 3, which describes mankind's fall into sin and the whole world with them, earning the curse of God's wrath. It reads, Genesis three twenty three and 24. The Lord God sent Adam out from the Garden of Eden. The Lord God sent Adam out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And the altars then and sacrifices predating even the law of Moses and the priestly and sacrificial systems therein were intended all along to remind the people of this problem. Namely, that we offend the living God with our every breath and He has cast us away from Himself. And that we are justly under His wrath and that there is now a gulf, a wilderness between He and us, between His holiness and our filthiness. And all of it pointed forward to the solution, a spotless lamb, a once-for-all sacrifice, The barrier was far higher, the wilderness far too treacherous and deadly than any human could traverse. The barrier was God's holiness itself and His just wrath against sin. We could no more even attempt to cross the divide than could a snowman cross the Sahara Desert. Only God Himself could come blaze this trail, cross the wilderness, overcome this barrier, and that's the point. And it's why Jesus came to open the way, to blaze a trail through the wilderness, to break through the desert of God's curse and wrath so as to bring many sons in His trail to glory. I am the way does that not make sense follow follow me he says we go this way it's not about you then it's about him this is what the writer of Hebrews is getting at when he says that Jesus was made perfect through suffering now Of course we know that Jesus Christ was and is always morally perfect, pure, righteous in every and all ways. He is God and He is therefore without sin even all the way through His journey on this earth. The Bible tells us so, but He was, the Bible also tells us, perfected in His office as messiah, christ, savior. He would need to we're told learn obedience. So says the writer of Hebrews. And he did. He would need to now these are real-time concepts, learn and another one, achieve. He would need to achieve He would need to accomplish a perfect righteousness under the law where every human had already failed and fails still. He would need to achieve being like us in every way except without sin so that He could be our true representative. And take our place. He he would need to actually act as high priest in real time. He would need to offer in real time the once-for-all sacrifice, namely Himself. And He would need to then become the sacrifice in time, the spotless lamb, and He would need to become a risen, victorious trailblazer through sin and Satan, and death. He would need to fight through it and win. He would need to learn. He would need to achieve in his office of Messiah. He would need to be. He would need to become Messiah. In other words, he would need to be perfected through suffering and then rise victorious. It was only through death that the world could gain a Savior and the dead one rising again. And this He did gloriously fully for all time, for all who have and will receive Him as such on their behalf. And this was all fitting, says the writer in verse 10. For it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing Sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was fitting. It made sense because it agrees with God's glorious and gracious character. Sin is dealt with, His holiness affirmed. It was fitting. It made sense because God is love. He's saving sinners by grace. It was fitting. It made sense because God is holy and because there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. The sacrifice would need to be sacrificed. It was fitting. It made sense because it gives all glory to God and not to us. It affirms that we could not make a way but that God, the way, came to make a way. It was fitting. It made sense. Because it draws our hearts to worship Him and Him alone. It was fitting. It made sense. Because God created humanity for glory, and in this way He has provided a way for them to reach this end. The Savior comes to take many sons to glory. In all of these ways and perhaps thousands more, it is fitting in bringing many sons to glory. God should make Jesus Christ, the founder of our salvation, perfect through suffering. The second point, the first being he is that pioneer. The second and last point is that he is the elder brother of all the redeemed. Just note in our text, 10, 11, 12, 13, just look at all the um, family language, particularly sons, brothers, children, father. <laughs> well just look at it. Verse 10 speaks of God bringing many sons to glory, that is, fellow sons with the Son of God, Christ's very brothers and sisters brought into God's forever family. Verse 11 tells us that He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, that there were to think of God as Father, He's He's the source of all of the children. Verse 11 goes on to say that Jesus is therefore not ashamed to call them brothers. Verse 12, Jesus promises to to declare God's name to His brothers. Verse 13, Jesus identifies Christians as the children God has given me, the fellow uh, heirs, fellow brothers and sisters. So, Jesus is the elder brother of every Christian, and He is the best of elder brothers, not like earthly older brothers sometimes can be. He is the kind of brother that leads to safety by slaying dragons and carrying his wounded and weak brothers and sisters home, leaving none behind. And he is the kind of brother, he is the kind of Savior that, as Spurgeon once said so well, that when he does a thing, he does it all. Jesus does not look back to his younger brothers and sisters and say, I've taken us this far. I've accomplished this much. Now you take over and finish it. Oh, no, 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 no. He finishes it himself, for us, the whole way, entirely, through and through, now and forever, for all those whom the Father gave to him. That's an amazing elder brother whom you have, Christian. In the Roman world, the elder brother was the sole heir, right? You know that? He would receive the whole of the father's estate, all of it. Well, Jesus has entered his inheritance as God's firstborn son, and what does he do with it? He gives it to you, brothers and sisters. He turns around, and the co-heirs with him and in him, he gives everything. Listen, Romans 8, Paul. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we follow Him there. This is how Paul actually says it. Provided we suffer with Him, you must follow Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Because where is He leading many sons to glory? The most important blessing we gain by having Jesus as our elder brother is entry into the family of God. He is not only the elder brother, but He is the divine eternal Son of God. By grace, we are adopted into the family to which Jesus belongs as the rightful Son we are not His brothers and sisters because we are children of God. Rather, we are children of God because we have been made His brothers and sisters. Before we were not the children of God. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, quote, "God predestined us, that is, Christians, for adoption that is out of one family and into God's family." Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So, our sonship, our being adopted into God's family, us being saved is through our relationship to the Son. You follow Him to where He's going, to glory. Remember the Galatians 4 text again? When the fullness of time had come, there's just a whole human history thing there to flesh out sometime. if That's fun. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son born of a woman, uh, sorry, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why all this? So that we might receive adoption as sons. So, the manger, the manger is so that there would be a cross And the cross is so that the incarnate Son of God would become the crucified and then risen one who would bring many sinners, many sons to glory through His own blood to the Father, which is precisely what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.18. Don't you love it when when the apostles so clearly say the same thing? 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that He might bring us to God. If you are a Christian by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, then you should think of yourself this way. An adopted son or daughter of God through Christ our perfect elder brother now and forever in the family of God. You are not first or foremost a white person or a black person or a brown person. You are not foremost a male or a female. You are not foremost a Swede or a German or even an American or whatever else. Rather, you are a new creation, a child of God by means of Jesus Christ. This is why the Christian church, the family of God, transcends any and all other descriptors that would divide us one from another. Above all, we are one in Jesus Christ, and we no longer find our primary identity or purpose in what we were before. Or even still are. And it follows then, doesn't it, that our attitudes, our our goals, our aspirations, our motives, and our actions should not be derived from the world around us. The unbelieving and rebellious human race into which we were born, which has Satan as father and ruler. Jesus said in John 8 and Paul in Ephesians 2, but from our new association in the resurrection family of God, into which, by God's grace, we are born again in Christ. We should therefore reflect God the Father, shouldn't we? Increasingly so, as most clearly seen in the Son, our elder brother, who we are following home and watching. Fix your eyes on Him. Doesn't that image work then? Follow Him. Don't look away from Him. Why is Jesus not ashamed then to call them brothers, Christians? Verse 11, for He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers. So, it's in the word that. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. What does that refer to? It refers to back to the first part of verse 11, doesn't it? He who sanctifies, that is, Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that is, all of the elect of God, all have one source. What does that mean? I think Jesus isn't ashamed to call Christians brothers. And sisters, mainly for two reasons as we look intently at verse 11. One, by God's grace, they are made holy. The sanctification words in verse 11. That is the defining trait of God's family made holy, made blameless, sanctified. Father, sanctify them. And two, the way this happens is that they are brought into by God the Father, they have one source relationship with Jesus, thus proving that they are of the same family. There is no shame here then for Jesus. Only joy and glory. It was the joy that was actually set before him. Later in this in this very letter, this very book, this very sermon of this author to the letter of the letter to the Hebrews. It was the joy set before Jesus for which He endured the cross. The joy of a holy family together with His heavenly Father who becomes our Father by God's new birth, saving, sanctifying, and preserving grace. He's not ashamed of any of this. This brings Him great joy. You bring Him great joy, Christian. Christians. Life, then, for the Christian is not about, and this isn't a cheap shot. Well, maybe it is. Towards me, maybe. Life, for the Christian, then, is not about collecting stuff or climbing the corporate ladder or achieving success for the sake of it or amassing money or seeking more and more ease and comfort, or, or fun, or seeking the approval of others, or any other such horizontal, merely horizontal, worldly, temporal, temporary thing. Life is rather, for the Christian, about growing in holiness. It is about becoming more and more what we are, that is, holy members of God's family through Christ our brother. Jesus then isn't ashamed to call us brothers and sisters because our salvation is unto holiness. In order to make us holy, Jesus took up our nature so that we might share in His nature and His inheritance. He came to where we were to take us to where He came from so that we might become like Him in His glory. For Him, In all of this, there is nothing to be ashamed of, only joy and glory, and so for his brothers and sisters. Now, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 and verses 12 and 13, he'll go on to marshal three Old Testament quotes to prove that it was designed all along that Jesus would come in our midst to gather the family of God, and lead them home. There would be an incarnation of one come from on high, and he from in their midst, he would tell on, of the name of the Lord, that is the saving name of the Lord, that is the gospel. And this one who would come would gather the family of God who were given to him by the Father beforehand, and, and this one who came is Jesus Christ. That's the author's point in, quoting the text he'll quote from Psalms and Isaiah but that's as much as I'm, I'm going to say about that bit uh, today that, that's the plan for next uh, Sunday as we continue through this section um, I think that sermon is called Flesh and Blood Jesus we're going to talk about how it was foretold it'll be Christmas morning as for finishing up this morning let me just remind you Christmas is for sinners. We've seen those two great things about Jesus this morning in Hebrews 2. He is, one, the pioneer of our great salvation, and He is, two, the elder brother of all the redeemed. Would you hear one more word from the great Whitfield, And we'll use it as our closing word. George Whitfield quote. Let me now conclude, my dear brethren. That's how you know it's Whitfield and not me. Let me now conclude, my dear brethren, with a few words of exhortation beseeching you to think of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did Jesus come into the world to save us from death and shall we spend no part of our time in conversing about our dear Jesus? Shall we pay no regard to the birth of him who came to redeem us from the worst of slavery, from that of sin and the devil? And shall this Jesus not only be born on our account, but likewise die in our place? And yet shall we be unmindful of Him? Shall we spend our time in those things which are offensive to Him? Shall we not rather do all we can to promote His glory and act according to His command? O my dear brethren, Be found in the ways of God. Let us not disturb our dear Redeemer by any irregular proceedings. And let me beseech you to strive to love, fear, honor, and obey Him. More than ever you have done yet, let not the devil engross your time. And that dear Savior who came into the world on your accounts have so little of it. Oh, be not so ungrateful to Him who has been so kind to you. What could the Lord Jesus Christ have done for you more than he has, dear brothers and sisters? Then Do not abuse his mercy, but let your time be spent in thinking and talking of the love of Jesus who was incarnate for us, who was born of a woman and made under the law to redeem us from the wrath to come. Oh yes, Christmas is for sinners. Don't neglect such a great salvation. Jesus came to rescue sinners, and thank God that he, he did. Don't you feel that way? Thank God that He saved sinners. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for these truths of Your Word that we can know about Christ from Your Word. And that by Your Spirit, we can come to know Him through the gospel. Pray, Father, that You would save, that You would grow Christians, that You'd sanctify them, that here You would continue to grow this family together in love and like-mindedness. And Father, as we spend this this now uh, full week in front of us, through this very time next week would we not neglect so great a salvation in our busyness and our things we focus on and in our travels may you be glorified may you have utmost and foremost spot in our affections this Christmas season may you be glorified We pray this in Jesus' saving name. Amen.